Last week, uh, we talked about good old, uh, well, not good old, <laughs> King Nebuchadnezzar, who was, uh, you know, in his pride, uh, God had to humble him big time. He had to eat some humble pie. And King Nebuchadnezzar was basically reduced to the status of an animal, and uh, for seven years, he was walking around on all fours and, uh, you know, chewing cud like a cow. And uh, finally, uh, Nebuchadnezzar saw the light, but, but God had to cut him down to size. Well, one of his successors was a man by the name of Belshazzar, who was anything but humble. And his story is told in Daniel chapter 5. But let me begin by saying, by prefacing, that King Belshazzar had a party. And it was an amazing party. This guy knew how to throw one. A thousand of the leading citizens of Babylon, along with their wives and their concubines, were invited to this huge banquet, and it was the social event of the season. Uh, the banquet hall was full of tables that laden with the finest food, and there were instruments and, and uh, vocalists who were providing entertainment, and uh, girls were dancing, and the, the wine was flowing freely. Uproarious laughter just filled the banquet hall. So, you know, who really cared, given that party, who really cared that the uh, enemies of Babylon, the Medes and the Persians, were knocking at Babylon's door and were at that moment laying siege to the city? The king didn't care because he figured Babylon was a powerful empire. It would last forever, and the city's walls were impregnable. So, by, and, you know, why uh, ruin a party by bringing in your troubles? Why doom and gloom? Eat, drink, and be merry. So it was party time in Babylon. Party on. But just when the party was at its merriest, just when the, the drunken revelry was about to get out of hand, Belshazzar made an attempt to impress the crowd even more. And so he ordered his servants to bring in the gold and the silver goblets that his ancestor, King Nebuchadnezzar, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem. These were holy goblets that were dedicated to the worship of God, the God of Israel, the true God. And so, they poured more wine, wine all around, wine in these holy goblets, and they began essentially to mock the God of the Jews. They sang praises to the Babylonian gods, the gods of gold and silver and iron and, and, and wood, bronze. Basically, they were spitting in God's eye. Well, it was at this very moment, a disembodied hand appeared. And there, against a candlelit wall, the hand began to write in the plaster. The king felt for sure that he had drunk too much wine. He couldn't believe his eyes. His face turned pale. He was frightened. His knees began to knock. In fact, his, his legs gave way. A hush fell over the crowd. And squinting in the low light, he could make out four words on the wall. Many, many, tekel, parson. 
immediately. The king called for his counselors, the, the, the wise people, the enchanters, the diviners, the dream interpreters. He brought them in and said, interpret for me these words. But all like they were stumped. And that scared Belshazzar even more. He didn't know what those words meant, but that couldn't have been good. <laughs> it couldn't have been a good sign. What did, what did all this mean? And so finally, the queen, hearing all the commotion that's going on in the banquet hall, addressed her husband, Belshazzar, reminding him of one named Belteshazzar, that is, Daniel in Hebrew, a remarkable fellow who had the uh, ability to interpret all of these things. Most people had forgotten about him, not generally wanting to hear the kind of wisdom that Daniel had to dispense. And so Daniel was brought before the king, and the king said to Daniel, Are you Daniel, one of the exiles my father the king brought from Judah? I have heard that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that you have insight, intelligence, and outstanding wisdom. The wise men and enchanters were brought before me to read this writing and tell me what it means, but they could not explain it. Now I have heard that you are able to give interpretations and to solve difficult problems. If you can read this writing and tell me what it means, you will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around your neck, and you will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Well then, Daniel answered the king, you may keep your gifts for yourself and give your rewards to someone else. Nevertheless, I will read the writing for the king and tell him what it means. So this is what Daniel then says to Belshazzar. Your majesty, the most high God gave your father Nebuchadnezzar sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendor. Because of the high position he gave him, all the nations and peoples of every language dreaded and feared him. Those the king wanted to put to death, he put to death. Those he wanted to spare, he spared. Those he wanted to promote, he promoted. And those he wanted to humble, he humbled. But when his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, he was deposed from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. He was driven away from people and given the mind of an animal. He lived with the wild donkeys and ate grass like the ox, and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he acknowledged that the Most High God is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and sets over them anyone he wishes. But you, Belshazzar, his son, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all this. Instead, you've set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You had the goblets from his temple brought to you, and you and your nobles, your wives, and your concubines drank wine from them. You praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand. But you did not honor the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways." Therefore, he sent the hand that wrote the inscription. This is the inscription that was written. Many, many, tekel, parson. 
And here's what these words mean. Mene. God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel. You have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Parson. Your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Well, this, has a, this story has a happy ending for Daniel. Daniel was clothed in purple. A gold chain was placed around his neck. And he was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom. But poor Belshazzar. That very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain. And Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. Well, there you go. Another classic story from the Old Testament. Belshazzar was guilty of two major sins. For one thing, he failed to learn from the sins and failures of others in the past. Belshazzar knew well the story of his ancestor, Nebuchadnezzar, how his arrogance got him in trouble, how Nebuchadnezzar had to be humbled by the God of Israel, and how Nebuchadnezzar had to be brought so low till he reached the point where he could begin to acknowledge the sovereignty and the lordship of God Most High. I mean, his story would have been famous. I mean, anybody who crawls around in all fours for seven years as king, uh, you know, people remember that story. But Belshazzar refused to take this lesson to heart. And it turns out he was even more arrogant than Nebuchadnezzar. He refused to humble himself, and he figured that what happened to Nebuchadnezzar, that was Nebuchadnezzar's problem, but hey, I'm king now. No trouble will come to me. The God of the Jews be mocked. But you know what? Belshazzar should have known better. God exercised a lot of patience with Nebuchadnezzar, actually. But he didn't have that same kind of uh, patience for Belshazzar. He should have known better. In fact, he was given no opportunity to repent. Judgment swiftly fell upon him in his kingdom. As Scripture says, he was slain that very night. So why are we so slow to learn from the sins and the failures and the mistakes of others? You would think that we would observe what happened to certain people and take those experiences to heart so that we might gain wisdom. You would think that we would choose not to follow the wrong path others have taken so that we can spare ourselves pain and heartache and trouble. But so often it seems that's just not the case. You know, parents, you know, in moments of honesty might share something of the sins and the failures and mistakes they've made in the past with a view to maybe helping their children avoid <laughs> such experiences so that they might be spared some of the heartache and the pain that they had to go through. But I don't know, it just seems that more often than not, children have to go out and do their thing and they have to experience life the hard way. 
they don't learn from the experience of others, from their parents. Time and again, Israel failed to learn the lessons of the past. When Israel was uh, on task uh, in doing uh, what God would have them do, when they were walking with the Lord, when they were obeying Him, then blessings came their way. The people flourished. But then when they turned their back on God, when they went their own way, obedient to their own will, then they found themselves under a curse and the prosperity disappeared. Israel constantly repeated the sins of the past and they continued to suffer the consequences. Wisdom is learning from the sins and from the failures and the mistakes of others, making a conscious effort not to repeat them. And you see, this is what Belshazzar failed to do. He had a perfect example of what not to do in Nebuchadnezzar. But he did his own thing, and he reaped the consequences. That was his first sin. Now, his second sin was even greater than the first. He failed to take God seriously. He mocked the God of Israel, committing blasphemy, drinking out of vessels, holy vessels that were dedicated to the worship of the true God, and then offering praise to false gods. Again, essentially, you know, spitting in God's eyes. But you see, Belshazzar did not have a healthy fear of God. There's something, I mean, people really ought to have a healthy fear of God. He believed that what he did or didn't do didn't matter. Since he was king, he could do whatever he wanted. He didn't have to answer to anybody. He was no accountable to no one. He could sin as he pleased, living a life of pleasure, throwing lavish parties at taxpayers' expense, all the while oppressing the poor, turning a blind eye to the needy. The king thought he could get away with murder because he was king. And the psalmist described people like Belshazzar. He says to himself, nothing will ever shake me. He swears, no one will ever do me harm. His mouth is full of lies and threats, trouble and evil are under his tongue. And again from the Psalms. He says to himself, God will never notice. He covers his face and never sees. Now, sadly, there are, many, there are many folks today who believe that they answer to no one. For them, it doesn't matter what they do or what they fail to do. For after all, they are king or queen of their own life. God, if there is one, has either totally forgotten or covers his face and never sees. What does God care? God is blind. So the folks believe they can sin with impunity. They can darn well do what they please, even if others are hurt in the process. And they can get away with it 
they think. There's a lot of people believe in God. There's a lot of hiding from God. Oh, God doesn't care. God doesn't see. I don't have to. I'm not accountable. Scripture, however, is very clear that God does indeed see. Again, as the psalmist warns. Take notice, you senseless ones among the people, you fools. When will you become wise? Does he who fashioned the ear not hear? Does he who formed the eye not see? Does he who disciplines nations not punish? Does he who teaches mankind lack knowledge? Does God who created everything and God created human beings as the climax of, the, of His creation. Does God not care about human beings live? Well, you better believe God cares. The Apostle Paul reminds us that each of us will stand before God's judgment seat and that each one of us will give an account of himself or herself to God. One day, every one of us will stand before God's judgment bench, and our deeds will be weighed in the scales of God's justice. Will our lives and deeds be found wanting like Belshazzar? Will our deeds be judged primarily by our self-serving, concerned only for our pleasure and comfort at the expense of others? Will we be challenged for having worshipped the false gods, be they pleasure or money or sex or power? Or will we be found to have lived lives marked by humility and justice and compassion because we walked with God. When we stand before God, what kind of an account will we be able to give? And it's, uh, it's a very sobering thought, actually. It's kind of a scary thought. And as the Scripture says, those who would dare to preach God's Word and teach it will be judged even by a higher standard. That is, to me, the scariest verse in the whole Bible. <laughs> oh, man. Now, as you know, it is not fashionable today to think of God as judge. Scripture is very clear, however, God will judge evil, and the evil people do, and He will vindicate the righteous. So, uh, there is something to be said for a healthy fear of God. Such fear is the beginning of wisdom, says a proverb. You don't want to fool around with a holy God who cares about how we live because He cares about us. Now, today, many folks uh, kind of laugh at the idea of God as judge or the concept of a coming judgment. They scoff at the notion of hell. They truly believe that they are accountable to no one and that it doesn't matter how you live. Many folks live in our self-indulgent culture, not unlike Belshazzar. Their philosophy is eat, drink, and be merry. The Apostle Paul speaks of those whose God is their stomach, whose mind is set on earthly things, their destiny is destruction. They're preoccupied with their own needs and their own comforts. They let themselves go. They, go, they sin with impunity, believing, they do, again, that they don't have to answer to anybody. But the Scripture would, this story would say to them and to all of us, uh, you know, Lots of folks are going to have a surprise coming. God will say to uh, them one day, the party's over. We'll all have to settle with God. The handwriting is on the wall. We will all be judged. 
if not in this life, then in the life to come. Now, how does God judge? Well, um, sometimes God judges people in this life, I believe, by withdrawing from people, allowing people to simply reap the destructive consequences of their actions. God doesn't necessarily have to send plagues and, and floods and so on as He did in the past, but God simply gives them up to their own devices. What people sow, they will inevitably reap. And so God says to those who constantly rebel, okay, have it your way. Do things your way, since you're so smart. And then God will back away to let things play out. It's not so much that God dishes out punishment as it is people who bring down judgment upon themselves as a, as a natural result of their foolish actions. But God will also deal with people in the afterlife. Thankfully, though, each of us must stand before the judgment seat of God and uh, those who believe in Jesus Christ are not under condemnation, for God has made provision for us through Christ who died for us that we might be counted righteous before Him. In and through Christ, we are granted forgiveness and the promise of eternal life. Christians not need fear the coming judgment, to which I say, praise be to God. But Belshazzar's sin is that he refused to take God seriously and to change his life accordingly. He refused to repent. He was too proud and arrogant. He would do things his way come hell or high water, and you know what? Hell came to him. And he experienced the judgment of God in the form of the sword of Darius the Mede. So here's a, a warning to us, to each of us that we ought to take the experience of Nebuchadnezzar or Belshazzar to heart, to remind ourselves that it matters supremely how we live, and that you and I need to humble ourselves before God and repent of our selfish pride and our preoccupation with our own comfort and pleasure, and we all need to turn to God and Jesus in faith, remembering that we are ultimately accountable to Him. Now is the time to repent. Now is the day of salvation. Now is the time to be reconciled to God and give God the honor that is His due. So we're reminded, the story, hey, we are all accountable, not to ourselves, but ultimately to our God who loves us and who wants us to live well and who wants to bless us. But if the story is a warning to us, it's also a great encouragement, for the story emphasizes the major theme of Daniel. That is, God is sovereign, God is in control, and God's loving and gracious purposes for His people will prevail. You know, the main character in the book of Daniel is not Daniel, uh, as wonderful as he is, and certainly the, the uh, the main characters of the book of Daniel are not Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar, but the main character of the book of Daniel is the main character in the whole Bible and the whole story who is God. And God is working His purposes out. And that's good news for us because God's in control and not us. Now, as we look at our world and at our own lives, it may seem as though God has left the scene. I mean, can you imagine being Daniel and some of the other Israelites who were carried off into exile into Babylon? They saw the temple destroyed, 
the holy temple destroyed in Jerusalem, the holy city basically razed to the ground by Nebuchadnezzar and his hordes. Can you imagine Daniel? You'd think that, that he would, they would have thought that God had abandoned the people forever, that God had just left the scene. And yet you got folks like Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar who are just living it up living in a lap of luxury, who have no concern about anything except for their own, their own selves. Appears like those folks who are rebelling against God are living a grand life. But that is only temporary. For the wicked, the rebellious, the handwriting is on the wall. To them, God will say, the party's over, and God will settle accounts with them and usher in His righteous kingdom. The hand of God's sovereignty is above all the kingdoms of this world. So that's a great comfort to us. When we look at our world, we see what's going on, you know, Orlando and San Bernardino and Paris and all those horrible things and floods and all the horrible things that happen in, in this life. It seems sometimes like the, the world is just in the grip of evil and that evil people are just having their way. But it's so good to remember that God is sovereign, God is Lord, God is working His purposes out. God's love and God's goodness will triumph in the end and evil will not have the last word. The handwriting is on the wall. God is the judge who will make all things right. So, there's hope for this world and for us after all. Thanks be to God. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Well, Lord, our hearts are stirred when we see the hand of Your providence revealed. Humble us before You and Your sovereignty that we might taste of Your sovereign grace and not of Your sovereign judgment. Teach us the truth of this world by the Spirit and apply it to our hearts. Comfort us where we need comfort. Strengthen us where we need strengthening. Humble us where we need humbling. And we'll give You the praise and the glory. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.